Today's guest is Lou Velozzi. Uh, Lou is a dear friend. He's a former undercover agent for the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobaccos, and Firearms. I think what I'm most appreciate and admire uh, about Lou is his, his ability for empathy. He talks uh, in, in great detail about what you have to do to go over and be part of the criminal element in order to uh, pull off the stings that he was able to pull off going undercover for years at a time. He talks about the enormous toll that that took on his family, but uh, Lou traded on his ability to connect, empathize, and get to know people in order to be his cloak that got him into these worlds. And I think what he left with is a, a beautiful uh, and human understanding of how this world works and how the criminal world, it's not black and white and how there's so much gray area in between. I think Lou gets to the heart of what this entire show is about. When you get to really put your foot on both sides of the issues, you see that there's no such thing as good and bad and that we're all just trying the best that we can. Hope you all dig the episode. Brother, thank you for doing this, man. Man, thank my honor, this. brother. Oh, my fuck, pleasure. man. It's, it's, it's my honor. And, uh, you know, I met you down, uh, I met you down in, in, in South Carolina, you know, at uh, one of Sid's events. Um, you, you know, Sid's events are something, man. I you know, love it's it. like, yeah, yeah. What, what do you love about him? So, you know, he gets this group of guys together, yeah. men and women, yeah. you know, who have these incredible backgrounds and experiences. And you never know who you're talking to That's right. and what their background might be. You know, and then you find out and you're like, wow, this girl did that or this guy did that. And it's just an amazing collection of people. And I love to hear their stories. Me too, man. And it's it's crazy because, you know, it's like all from, you know, just titans of the law enforcement community and special forces community and like people have been through. But one thing is I just find like everybody's so humble. So look, man, I'm 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 a huge admirer of yours. Like it was so cool to meet you that day and I immediately connected to you and and um you know you, we we talked we talked a little bit about your family and um you know you gave me your book which I loved and I loved Thanks, the, the inscription that you wrote on there and uh in the book you, you you said something that really struck me you just talked about like in a world of um you know tough guys you know in a world of like badass criminals in a world that you 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 know extraordinarily well it's really not about being the toughest guy in the room it's 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 about understanding human nature absolutely can you can can you explain that yeah, if you, uh, if you walk into a room, all right, and you're the kind of person that people just naturally want to be around, people want to listen to you, like they want to find out what, what's, what's this guy's hustle, you know, what's he all about, then you have the ability to be a good undercover. It is not about getting earrings and growing your hair long and, and lifting weights and being a tough guy, you know, because eventually, you know, these guys we're working on, they're smart guys. Yeah. I mean, they're sharp. Yeah. They're street smart, you know, and they know what they're doing. There's a reason why they're still out there, right? And they will see through you if you come in as a tough guy. Yeah. And, you know, I have a, my example of that is my first biker case I did. So I got the call um, back in 1999 to do uh, a case on the Outlaws uh, motorcycle. And where was this? In Atlanta, Georgia. Uh-huh. And... Uh, I learned later that the only reason I got that call was because I was the only other agent in the Atlanta Field Division that had a motorcycle license on my undercover <laughs> license. It wasn't because of any skill or anything I had. Um, so the story was there was a 
ATF agent who was already undercover with these guys, and his partner was a, uh, a task force agent with the sheriff's department. And as they started getting embedded and it started getting deep and the outlaws had asked them to go to bike week in Daytona with them, that the sheriff's department pulled their guy. They said, listen, we, we didn't sign up for all this. And they pulled their guy, so he needed a partner. And I got the call. And the only reason I had a motorcycle license on my undercover license was because when I was 18 years old, I had a Yamaha Virago for like six months. <laughs> I, right? And I didn't know how to ride a Harley. I'd never ridden a Harley. I knew nothing about outlaw bikers. Really? Nothing. So, and I remember driving from Savannah up to Atlanta, calling my buddy who did ride Harleys up north and saying, hey, bro, on a Harley, is it, when you shift, is it one down and then four? <laughs> he, he was like, dude, what are you getting yourself into, man? And uh, so I get there and there was two informants and the uh, ATF undercover guy. And, you know, the informants were big biker dudes. And they give me this chopper, right? It was a hardtail, raked out uh, chopper. And, bro, I couldn't have, I didn't know anything, let alone how to start this thing. So right off the bat, they're like, hey, follow us. We're going to the clubhouse. This is my first day. So it was uh, nighttime. It was kind of misting. It's North Georgia mountains. And uh, they take off, and all I'm seeing is taillights. I'm trying to, I'm trying to keep up. And I go into a, a turn. I dump the bike. Oh, fuck. I slide about 50 yards into a ditch. And, you know, I mean, I'm all, I'm all you know, road... Uh, cut up and all that. Had you, have you ever dropped a bike before? No, I'd only ridden a bike for a couple months. Holy shit. So um, by the time they figured out I wasn't behind them and they came back, the big informant who never liked me, um, he looks at me and he looks at the, uh, the undercover guy and he says, you want us to take this motherfucker into the outlaws clubhouse? He can't even ride a fucking motorcycle. Oh, wow. So when I heard that, I was like, you know what? Nah. I picked my shit up and I bent the mirrors back and, you know, they helped me get the bike out of the ditch. And I said, let's go, you know? So at least I won their respect. Yeah. Even though all I wanted to do was go home. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah of was, course, of course. So, so anyway, we get to this clubhouse and I don't know if you've ever been in a, a one percenter clubhouse, but they're very intimidating, yep. right? I, you know, I had never seen anything like it. Uh, and again, I knew nothing about Can it. Can you explain why they're intimidating? So you got a bunch of... Uh, Big, scary-looking dudes who are bad guys. The place is dirty. It's dark. There's, there's just a general feeling of, of evil about it. That's how, that's how it was for me. Just, I felt like, man, bad things have definitely happened in this place, and, yeah. I, and are probably going to happen again. Yeah. Um, so when we went in there, um, you know, and I had no coaching or training or anything, I stood there against the wall. Okay, for about forty-five minutes, I didn't say a word. I just stood there. And I watched these guys and I watched how they carried themselves and how they interacted. And I could tell right away who the president was by the way they were talking to him, you know, and acting with him. So after about 45 minutes, I walked up to the president and I introduced myself and I called him, sir. I said, sir, I said, I don't know anything about your culture and I don't know anything about your rules. And I certainly don't want to offend you or anyone else. I just want to learn. I want to become one of you someday. And I, I want you to teach me. I want to learn. So I, I kind of appealed to his ego. Yeah, you know, sure. And he saw, he saw this big gorilla that he could mold. Yeah. And he loved that. And I became his favorite guy. He took wow. me under his wing, which made that informant hate me even more. How about the other that. agent? Or the, the guy from the sheriff's department? 
so he was out. The, okay, the, he was the gone, other okay. agent was in, and uh, and so that that kind of made everything easier for me in that case because this guy had taken me under his wing. And now, if I had gone in there and acted like a tough guy right off the bat, they would have sniffed me out right away. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, there's no way I was pulling the wool over their eyes. So that, and then that was my first lesson in working undercover: how to carry myself. Don't go in there as a tough guy. You know, don't go in there pounding your chest yeah. because they're going to sniff you out or they're going to call you bluff. Yeah. You know, just talk a little bit about kind of how you came up and what made you sort of make the decision in the first place to law enforcement and, and how the ATF kind of came into your life. Yeah, I came up totally normal, you know, with a good good Italian family, um, playing sports. And, uh, you know, I went to college. And I had no direction in my life. Did you play football? I played football, yeah. Mm -hmm. Lafayette College, Division I AA powerhouse. Yep, yep, um, yep. And so when I got out of college, I, I was useless, right? I had a, a degree in uh, business and economics with like a 2.1 QM and, and no direction in my life. So I took a job at a bank making $8 an hour in a room with no windows, uh, putting computer printouts into files. And I just got a phone call one day from a guy I played ball with. He was down in the Bronx. He said, "What well, you sound miserable. He goes, come, come on down and visit. So I, I went down there to visit him. And uh, I didn't even know he had a brother. And so we're sitting on the stoop. And this guy pulls up in a Corvette. And he gets out. And he's the coolest looking motherfucker I've ever seen in my life. Back then, remember, this is, this is Miami Vice days, right? He had the, the kind of fan back long hair. And, you know, he's wearing an open shirt. And he had a Beretta 92F stuck in his waistband there. And I'm, I'm looking, I'm like, man, this is a cool dude. Right? Yeah, yeah. Right? And uh, <laughs> he walks in, and it turns out he was a DEA agent. He had just gotten back from um, Peru, I believe, and he was, he was working some undercover. And we sat down, we had a beer, and he talked to me for about 30 minutes about what he did. And it was like the skies opened up. And that's I found my direction right then. I wanted to be an undercover agent. What was it specifically? I mean, besides him just looking like a cool motherfucker, was there anything that he said? Was there anything that made you think, shit, I could do this well? So it was, it was the concept. It was the concept he talked about of the game. So it's kind of your skill against their skill, right? If, if you're better than them, they're going to prison, right? If they're better than you, they're going to sniff you out, right? Things might end bad for you or you're just going to have to walk. But it was that concept of the challenge and of the game, right, to see – you know, who's got better, who's got better skill. And in the end, if you win, right, you've done something good, right? You've taken a violent, bad person off the street, someone who's putting, you know, guns out on the street or, you know, large quantities of dangerous drugs or whatever it is. So I loved that it was kind of almost a sport, right? Yeah. It's, it's a, Especially it's, at a time you're working at a bank and you don't, maybe don't have those stakes and you're just yeah. that, that, that fucking, you know, college football player, everything's kind of on the line, living fully. Yep. And then you're in this where it's just kind of getting stale. You knew that wasn't for you. Dude, I mean, thinking about like doing that for the rest of my life yeah. was miserable. Yeah. So when I heard about this, you know, and I could I could just see it in his eyes when he was talking to me, like the passion, you know. And I found that, and I said, man, this is what I want to do. I hadn't, I didn't want to be a uniform cop. I, law enforcement was never even on my radar, but the thought of being an undercover agent, it just appealed to me, mm. and that was it. And as you know. You don't just become an undercover agent, sure. right? You pay your dues, you know. And from that point, by the time I was able to get hired and work through, it was probably eight years before I started actually working undercover. But once I did, I 
that was it. I have a, a guy who's really, really close to me. He's a career undercover guy uh, down in Shreveport, Louisiana, a guy named Carl Townley, who's just uh, – we, we, we've, we've gotten enormously close over the past 12 years. And one thing he always talks about is sort of like this fine line. He always says like, look, man, if I didn't become a cop, I would have been a criminal. He was like – and one thing that he always talks about is that like – you know, it's, you know, one word for it is maybe empathy. One word mm -hmm. for it is maybe respect, but that, you know, you see people just because they're on the other side of the field, you see people and you, you, you see the situation that they came up in yep. and you actually start feeling for them and you start caring about them. And, 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 and I really, we'll talk about that eventually about like sort of betrayal and what that, 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 that feels like for you. But why did you, why did you know you'd be good at it? You know, I always, I always had that hustler in me, you know, that hustle, um, you know, whether it was just trying to make extra money or whatever it was, you know, I was good at it. I was good at talking to people. I was good at going into a bar. And, and I, this is something I've always said, and it's super corny, but it really is true. If you have game, if, if you're that guy who can go into a bar and, and you're not like some Brad Pitt looking dude and you can pull the hottest chick out of that bar, sure. you're going to be good at undercover. Yeah. You have some natural game. Yeah. I could bring my crew in here of guys and none of them look like Brad Pitt. I can tell you that. Yeah. And they would sit here and it would look like, you know, prison just got out. Yeah. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, all these guys, they're phenomenal skills. First thing you'll notice about them is that, wow, these are really smart guys. Like after you get past what they look like, these guys are really smart. And then you see their game. These guys got game, you know, and those guys, you know, in their younger days were always guys who could pull the hottest chick out hmm. of a bar, even hmm. though they weren't the best looking dude in that sure, bar. Sure, sure, sure. They knew what, what is to say. Game? Like what in your words, what is game? Knowing what to say, when to say it, knowing what not to say. Yeah. Right? That's game. It's like selling a car. Yeah. Right? That person wants to buy the car, right? But they want the best price. There's all these, there's all these factors you got to put in. So you have to know what to say to them, when to say it, and how to get that money out of their pocket. Yeah. How to make a sale. Sure. That's sure. game, man. And sure. that's what you're doing working undercover. You're just making a sale. I'm selling you my load of shit. Yeah. My hustle. I'm yeah. selling it to you. Yeah. Yeah. So if you can do that, you can be a successful undercover agent, man. So 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 tell me about that journey then. Like, you know what you you said it was eight years? Eight years. And and uh was there anything, was there ever a time where where the dream where the focus wasn't that? Was there ever a time where you wavered and said, Hey, maybe I want to do something else instead? Or were you dead set on it from the beginning? I, I was so dead set. You know, I started out in LA and, and um I was in some gang units and I, and I was working with LAPD and the Rampart Division. We were kicking doors in and that, that was the action part, right? This was during the riots. The greatest time to be a law enforcement officer was in Los Angeles in the early 90s. Why is that? It was off the charts. The, the gang situation was so bad. Like all the Central American gangs had come in to LA and, you know, our own gangs, they didn't know what to make of it. Even the Bloods and the Crips. They were seeing a level of violence that even they weren't used to hmm. because the MS-13, uh, these guys, they were coming in. They were chopping people's heads off. They were introducing this level of violence that we weren't accustomed to. The gangs weren't accustomed to it. And it was just wide open. So, it, you know, and it all, L.A. was kind of the, the epicenter, you know, of where this all started. And it was during the early 90s. And we were out there on the streets during this time. And, and I loved it. I love that work. What did you love about it? You know, I love the action. I, I love the feeling when you took a real bad guy off the street, sure. right? When this guy, when, you know, it said MS-13 on his forehead and, you know, he had the teardrops and he's, he's cutting people's heads off and, and, you know, you just took him off the street. How many lives did you just save? You, right? There's no way of knowing. And I, I love that feeling. Um, I, I also loved, it, it was very interesting because 
I started out as an INS agent, which is now an ICE agent. And, and so what they did for your first six months is they put you on the release line at LA County Jail to interview every inmate on the release line, every foreign-born inmate. So in LA County Jail at that time, that was probably 80% of the inmates sure. were foreign-born. Sure. So, and your job was to determine alienage and deportability and slap a detainer on them, okay? But, so I would be interviewing guys who had gotten locked up, some guy from Mexico who got locked up on a DUI. And then I'd be interviewing some, you know, gangbanger from El Salvador who killed 10 people, right? But what I, what I was doing was most, most guys and girls would want to get the interview done, slap the detainer on and move on. Do the job. I was fascinated by these guys. Yeah. Not the DUI guy. Yeah, yeah. But the MS-13 guy who had grown up like on a dirt floor in some shack outside of San Salvador. Somehow he ended up in L.A. and he's chopping some guy's testicles off and shoving them in his mouth, right, for the gang. And I would ask him, you know, tell me about this journey. How did you get from that little boy in San Salvador, you know, to, to what you're doing right now, you know, here in Los Angeles? And, you know, talk to me. And when these guys saw that I was genuinely interested in their story, they talked. Wow. You know, and, and what, what do you think? What, what, what was that genuine interest? Where did that come from? So it, it was just a fascination of, you know, we all come from somewhere and all of us, right, we're all born. And at some point, a mama held us. And, yeah, and, man. and, and it would fascinate me that, you know, this guy from such simple uh, backgrounds, you know, a lot of them were out, out in the jungle and out in the, in the sticks, you know, in, in these Central American countries. You know, you're in now. You're in East LA, right? And you're and you're doing some terrible things. Like how how did that happen? Like what what is your story, man? And a lot of the times, it was because you know the gangs had their families back there and they had to do their bidding, hmm. right? So there was more to it. Sure. You know, but what I started doing was I would relay this in, information to our gang unit, and these guys saw they were like, hey, this new Jack, he, he's on the job, man. He gets it. You know, he's you know for so that's how I was able to get into working gangs and get into that gang unit. Um, which I enjoyed again, but the, I knew in the end, you know, it was undercover work. But but I imagine in that get, you know, we, some of my friends, you know, that we've had on the show and friends of the show and guys I've been friends with a long time, guys from Newton Division down in in, in in South Central, and they were in Crash Unit, and some guys in Rampart. Maybe you even know some of these guys, but you know, all of them talk about those days, sort of the way that that that, that you do in the '90s. But I imagine during that time, you came you came in contact with like some real violence and not just hearing somebody tell you the story, but you're seeing it firsthand and, oh, and, and it's in your face. What was your kind of history, you know, with violence and, and when you encountered it on that level and to that scale, did it make you take pause? How did it make you feel? Did it scare you? Did it, did it ignite sort of more curiosity or did it, like, I know some guys it's like, you know, I grew up boxing and it's yeah. like, we always say, you see guys hitting the bag all day, but then you get in the ring, you get hit. And it's like, you go one of two ways. Like how, how was that for you? So, so I found it fascinating. I, I really did. You know, yeah. I, I was, you know, I played sports. I was a terrible boxer. Um, I, I couldn't get out of the way of a punch to save my life. Yeah, yeah. Right. And you know, football and all that. And yeah. I got into jujitsu and all that, but I was accustomed to sports violence, which sure. is a whole nother world from street violence. Yeah. And, you know, I had never been introduced to any of this. Sure. Right. And now I'm out here in LA, I'm in my early twenties and you know, they're, they're hacking each other. I mean, body parts are coming off. Literally, that's what we were seeing. And like you said, you know, you're going to react one or two ways when you see that, that kind of violence. Right. And to me, I was fascinated by it fascinated by it. 
you know, I wanted to do the right thing. I wanted to lock up these guys because, you know, I truly believe there's no there's no place for that on mm -hmm. our streets, man. Mm -hmm. Right? There's no place for that. But I wanted to I wanted to get involved. I wanted to get involved from an undercover aspect with these guys. I knew I could run with these dudes, you know, and get in. And even if I was working them from the outside, you know, I knew I could do it. So everything in my career, you know, during those first seven or eight years was building to working undercover. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And and uh, and then where, where how how does that ma manifest itself? Like how does that how does that begin? So I had to jump. I jumped around two agencies, and when I finally uh, landed on a ATF, was a hard agency to. So the reason I didn't know anything about ATF till I was in LA, and I got on that Rampart Task Force, and I saw the ATF guys. Like I noticed the LAPD guys didn't have much respect for any of the feds, right? Except for the ATF guys, because right. the ATF guys were always in the mix. When there was a shootout, it was always an ATF guy, yeah. right? They were always in the mix. Undercover work, they were doing all that. They were the cowboys. Yeah. And I saw the respect the LAPD guys gave me even. And I said, that's where I need to be. Yeah. Small agency, only 2,000 agents. They didn't hire a lot. Very hard to get into in the 90s. Uh, so when it finally opened up in 97, I, I was in Puerto Rico on a fugitive task force. And I put in and I was able to get the job. And my first day, I lucked out. So I put in, I put in for New York, uh, Miami, in LA, because I wanted I wanted the action, right? And those are cities generally agents are trying to get out of, right? So I figured I was a shoo-in. And they say, okay, we're gonna hire you in Savannah, Georgia. And I was like, what the fuck? Savannah. <laughs> but you know, sometimes things work out, right? Sure. So my first partner, the day I got there, he was a lunatic. Um, Julio Delgado, he goes by. Um, his real name's Randy Beach. He was an undercover guy. And the first day he says, You wanna work undercover? I said, Yep. He goes, all right, you're going to do a deal today. I hadn't even been to the academy yet, right? right. right? So he goes, what, what is with that with the fucking AT? I mean, like Jay got shot on his yeah. first day. He, yeah. Like, what is that with the AT? Like, you just throw it, that's just what they do? Yeah. Yeah. They throw you to the wolves, man. Okay, okay, yeah. sorry. Go ahead. So I, I had no training in undercover, nothing. Um, so he said, all right, my informant is going to bring you to the Crystal Burger, right? That's like... Crystal Burger is like the South's version of White Castle kind of. Sure, right? sure, sure. And he's got a he's a convicted felon. He's a member of the Piru gang, and he's going to sell you a gun. He wants to sell this gun for 250 bucks. I said, okay. All right, let's do it. So Randy, he gives me 300 bucks. I put it in my pocket, and uh, I get in the car, my, my undercover car, my brand new undercover car with the informant, and we drive to the Crystal Burger. And we walk in there. It's lunchtime. There's a million people in there, right? And there's this huge dude, big, tall dude. He's like, I don't know, 6'6". Six, six. And uh, the informant introduces me to him. And the informant fucking runs out the door. So I'm like, what? Right? Is that supposed to happen? Like, where's this guy going, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm like, okay, I'm here. And the guy says, hey, man, follow me. And he goes into the bathroom. And uh, it's, a, it's a bathroom in a fast food, right? right? There's, a, there's a sink and there's a urinal and there's one shitter and in those days do you are you do you have a radio on you do you have a gun on you like i had a wire a wire, a wire okay on, yeah so he opens the door to the toilet and he's like he's like go in there so, okay i guess this is how it's done i so i walk in there and he comes in behind me and shuts it and latches it so we're right here you know there's a, like i'm standing the toilet's right here <laughs> and he's so so i'm thinking all right this is my first day on the job my first undercover deal and it, it appears i've made some bad choices already right <laughs> because if it goes bad my options are limited Fuck right me. now man yeah, yeah so 
and I know there's going to be a gun involved because yeah. it's a gun deal. Yeah. So he he pulls his gun out of his waist and uh, he was he was there to sell the gun. Thank God, man. Yeah. So. I pull out the, he only wanted 250. I pull out 300 and give it to him, right? Cause I, <laughs> yeah. I just want to get the hell just out of there. Yeah. <laughs> I take the gun, I give him the 300. And uh, so as we're walking out, I'm like, you know, I didn't know the protocol. Am I supposed to break bread with this dude? Do we sit down and have a burger? <laughs> I, I ran out the door, just like the fucking informant. I ran right out the door. And I tell you what, I got in my car and I was driving back to the meat site, you know, and I, I let the team know. I said, Every, everything's good. I, I'm going back to the meat site. And I had that gun right here in the console, and it was the greatest feeling I've ever had in my life. Huh. It was the biggest high I've ever had in my life. Huh. I looked at that. I had just taken this gun off the streets, right? Yeah. Maybe that gun's killed a whole bunch of people. Maybe it was going to kill a whole bunch of sure. people. But I just made Ain't a got difference, anymore. man. Yeah, it, that was my high, man. And, and I never even slowed down after that, man. Wow. I was a dick. That was my drug, man. Wow. Ultimately, like, you build this whole persona i mean you you yeah. become, become this other person and 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 I, I imagine like you're you're new to savannah like like how, like you, you needed to like learn the streets of savannah right i mean yeah. like 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 how did that process go so i paid my due you know when if you my ultimate goal was to do what jay dobbins and chris bayless and john babyface Carr were doing right these guys were going all over the country doing these long-term infiltrations. They were rock stars. That's what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. But again, you pay your dues, right? So paying your dues, working undercover for the ATF means you're buying stolen pistols in alleyways, in car washes. You're buying uh, eight balls, right? You know, in, in the back of some dude's car in a shopping mall parking lot. And so that's what I started doing. And for you, but that is how you get your base, like anything else, whatever your profession is, you know, you, you start small and you pay your dues, right? And, and that's how you kind of, you develop a reputation, right? So my name started getting around a little bit and I started developing a reputation. Hey, this guy's a worker. Guys, he's putting some food on the table, right? He's bringing the guns in. And, and are you, are you Sal at this point? I mean, are you, are you this other guy now? Yeah. You're always. Yep. And you have his ID and everything? Everything. Everything. Already. Yeah. Got Passports, it. credit cards, everything. Yep. And in your mind, you have a whole backstory of this character. Like, could, if, if, if they ask you anything, and you, do, I mean, is it like the movies? Do you keep that close to yourself? Like, do you, like, so, so you have like real facility with it? We have, we use, and again, I, I don't want to give up yeah, yeah, too enough. many trade secrets, yeah, but we use, um, it's very creative. We use undercover guys. So if someone has to meet my family, something there, there's undercover agents out there old guys you know who my my father my grand who will come in and do things uh, to help us out and again i don't want to give away trade secrets sure, sure, sure. but we are backstopped in very creative ways so that if someone says well who was your fourth grade teacher you know and you know give me give me proof of this we have ways to do that um because they do say that sure and it does happen sure and sometimes it happens when there's a shotgun pointed at you. So you better be able to regurgitate it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Again, I, I think everybody should read your book. Like, I, I loved your book. And, Thanks, and I'm, I'm just, uh, you, you know, one of the first things you talk about is is the doctor that that wanted you to kill his wife. Yeah. And and you're out there as a hitman. As a, like a, and, and it's like very clear. Was that the first time somebody asked you to, somebody asked you to kill somebody for them? Yeah, that was my first murder for her. And- you saw the second 
where you, where where it was one hundred percent clear that's what he wanted to do. Like it was, yep. it, and and and, but it's like it seemed to me at least maybe I'm bullshitting or this is what I got from it. But there was like part of you you really wanted to give this guy a shot to like sort of have have it. Can you just describe that for us? So you got to give him an out. Right, because there's a lot of people talk and they talk shit. Right, oh, I hate my wife. I want to kill my wife. Right, there's a lot of that, obviously. Right, and, I'm, and women say the same thing. Right, so, so I gave him many opportunities, and, and we always do this with these murder for hire investigations to give him an out to say, listen, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube once I do this. Right, right? right. it's done. Right, are you sure right. this is what you want? Right, once you give me this money. Right. And I go out there and I, and you know, I, I walk out of this parking lot or I drive out of here. There's no stopping it. But are, but you, are sure? you saying that, are you saying that for legality? Or are you also saying that because it's like, hey brother, like, is there any part of you that like feels for that guy? Absolutely. Yeah. And there can, is. Can, can you describe that? So I want to be sure because, you know, and, and it really, there's very few like 100% evil people in this world. That's right. Right. If there's any, yeah. right. I'm sure there's, there's a few, but. You know, people get carried away, right? And people get a little out of control sometimes and say things they don't necessarily really mean literally when they're saying it. So, yes, I want to be sure that this is his true intention, right? I don't want to jam some dude up who's just had a really tough month, right? And he's down on his luck. And he's, I, I don't want to jam that dude up. I'd rather help that dude. But if his true intention is to hire someone, you know, to kill his wife, fuck him. Yeah. I do want to jam him up. Yeah. So I got to be sure. Yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah. and I want to give him a couple chances to back out. Yeah, yeah, and with him, like, did, what, wasn't there? Wasn't there? Did, didn't he kill his wives before? Didn't two of his other wives, like, yeah. wind up dead? So the the one before her was they found her in the bathtub, in about seven or eight inches of water, with her her upper body above the water, and the autopsy was inconclusive. And you know, this is South Georgia. He was a very, he, you know, he was a doctor for the LPGA. He was very well known. It was a good old boy network. And there was no charges. Yeah. I mean, yeah. She, you know, she was alone in the house. Oh, man. So, yeah, I mean, this guy was evil. Yeah. There was no, and it, we knew that going into this. So I was pretty sure, even though I gave him those outs, I was pretty sure he was serious about it. Yeah. And, and I knew when he talked to me, you know, the, the vitriol, the hate I, that was coming out of him, I knew he meant it. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it was just bizarre because this guy was a very successful doctor. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, very different from the like psychological profile of most of the guys I'm working on, right? Most of the guys I'm working on are just thugs, right? Like hardcore street gangbangers. This dude's a doctor. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so yeah. the whole profile is different. Yeah. Yeah. And what does that tell you sort of about like criminality in the first, I mean, you, you, you never know, right? You I mean, never like know. I mean, it, it's out there. It's everywhere. It, it's, it's in your neighborhood, right? Yeah, we, we all know it's in the bad neighborhoods, but yeah. it's in the good neighborhoods too. Sure. Right? It's because it's in all of our hearts, man. Sure, sure. You know? Sure. It's just who who can keep it suppressed. Sure. Right? Sure. So, so how long is it? Is it is it really like the the, the storefront, the storefront operations? Like how, how how long before you get is that you just gotta get trust from the department? Yeah. So once once I uh once I had kind of a couple of years going by, I had kind of proven myself. I started getting the call. And the first call was from Jay Dobbins and Chris Bayless. That was my first call. He was out in- uh, And those guys were already heroes to you? Heroes, yeah, man. Yeah. yeah. So, so there was three of them. There was Jay, Chris Bayless, John Babyface Carr. So Jay had whipped up this incredible case out in Arizona on a home invasion crew. He was buying kilos and, and 
bombs and all sorts of stuff. And he brought us in. He told these guys, I got my own crew. We were going to finish with a big home invasion. He said, I got my own crew. He goes, I'm going to bring them in for this. So this gang he's working on said, okay. So Jay said, listen, the bad guys are going to pick you up at the airport. You're in roll when you, as you walk off that plane, you're in roll. So I, I get off the plane and the bad guys are at the airport, scoop me up and, uh, it was two weeks of insanity out there because like you know, everything Bird did was over the top and insane. You know yeah. what I mean? You know, uh, he had uh, we bought an RPG from these guys. Like who who's selling RPGs <laughs> out there, right? I mean, these dudes were in. There was no crime they weren't into. Um, so we we spent about two weeks out there just kind of you know feeling out you know so they could get to know his crew and we got to know them and you know we b bought some guns and some dopes from them the RPG. Uh, Jay had already bought pipe bombs. And, uh, so on the last night before the takedown, Jay, uh, had arranged for the meeting with the bad guys to be at a strip joint. And uh, he was kind of throwing a bone to the SWAT guys, you know, SWAT guys who cover us, SRT guys, they have the worst gig, right? They're always like up in a tree or right and, you know, for hours. You know what I mean? And uh, so Jay's like, hey man, we do it at a strip joint. The boys can get dressed down and cover us, hang out at a strip joint while they're covering us. You know what I mean? So like, okay, cool. But you know, I was kind of the new guy in the mix. So, so uh, Bird was like, hey man, you're going to wear all the recording and monitoring uh, device. So it's Arizona in the summer. So, and back then the, the, the Niagara recorder we used was like this big, so I had to put it all in my crotch, right? Because I'm wearing a T-shirt and jeans. So I got all this shit like in my crotch, you know, as a recording and monitoring equipment. And uh, so Bird sends a stripper over to give me a lap dance to make me <laughs> even more uncomfortable, right? So so I figure, okay, you know, this is how it's going to go. So I, I asked the girl, I said, hey, what did he give you for this? And she said, 20 bucks. I said, well, here's 40. I said, go give him a dance. I said, but... He's kind of kinky. I said, when, you, when you're done with the dance, I go, give him a little slap in the face. Yeah. She goes, okay. So she goes over there. She starts dancing for him. And I swear to God, I got pictures to prove it. Yeah. Out of nowhere, she comes up with this Mike Tyson right hook <laughs> right here in his cheekbone and busts him wide open. I mean, wide open. It was spraying. What the fuck? She was wearing rings. Like... So I'm like, so I'm thinking, I'm sitting there watching this blood spurt out of his face. And all I'm thinking is my undercover career is over, man. Like yeah. that's the last invite I will ever get. Yeah, to yeah. say he was pissed is an understatement. Because <laughs> he had to go home and explain to Gwen, yeah. to his wife, yeah, right? Yeah, why his face yeah. was busted yeah, up from yeah, a, yeah. a strip joint. Yeah. So literally the SRT guy is suturing him. I, I run in the bathroom to apologize. He's getting sutured in the stall of the strip joint bathroom. That's how bad it was. <laughs> wow. And uh, so I'm like, oh, that's it. I'm done. So we do the take. The takedown goes goes great the next day. Bird's not saying much to me. And uh, and I talked to Chris Billis. I said, dude, I said, did I just do myself? Is it over? He goes, bro, we get over these things. It happens. I'll smooth it out. And Chris smoothed it all out and everything was good. And, uh, and I, I went on to... <laughs> Thank God, do do a whole bunch more and work with those guys all the time. Sure, you know? sure, so. sure. But I almost blew it all that first time. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. What is like a just for for people that don't know, like a storefront operation? What does that entail? And I, I'm 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 really interested in sort of like the street theater of it and and yeah. how you talk about it. So the the government, we set up a false business, okay, and uh, we don't do it haphazardly, right? We find these areas in town where 
the gun crime is just out of control. Yeah. And, you know, using these statistics, you know, we justify these operations by saying, you know, the shootings, the gun recoveries, you know, in this area. So we're going to open up a storefront operation. We open up a business that we choose and we run this business. It's owned and operated by the government, staffed entirely by undercover agents. We embed ourselves in the community and we start buying guns and drugs and we target the trigger pullers and the, and the guys who are putting guns on the street. That's who we're, we're targeting. And we use a network of informants sometimes, you know, to help us out, especially to get started. And we just start buying guns. And these, it is amazing once you get started, how these things spider web, right? And once the word gets out, how it spider webs. You know, my hustle was always the same. Sal Nunziato, you know, I was from New York and I, I would take these guns and I, you could buy a gun in Georgia for a hundred bucks. You could sell it on the streets. Of Brooklyn for fifteen hundred, and that's uh -huh. no bullshit. Yeah, and and that was my hustle. And we had I had moving trucks, and we had things set up where we would show them how we would secrete when we got enough guns. If once I got up to like two or three hundred guns, I would secrete these guns in furniture. We'd have it stuffed with furniture. This is some people's furniture. We're just moving them up north. So you know, if we get pulled over by Johnny Law, hey man, we're just moving furniture. We don't there know, right? So and, and these guys love that. Yeah, we would have cigarette. Uh, master cases in Newports and Marlboros, but the bottom would be hollowed out. So even if you open the box, you could pull, a, you could pull cartons out, but underneath it was all guns, you know, we, and we would show these guys this, you know, we would have the traps in our, in our undercover vehicles where, you know, you press the air condition and you put it to a radio channel and the back seat opens up and you, wow. put, you can put in 10 kilos or, or a couple machine guns, whatever. So we would use street theater um, where we would bring in undercover agents from other areas and we would do drugging gun deals in front of the bad guys to boost our credibility. Yeah, can you and, explain how that you would use them as security and stuff? Like, how, how would that work? So, and th this was my favorite thing to do in these storefront operations. You know, first of all, I, I would have a team, right? And you would, you would make a team. And I always considered it, you know, it, it was like the Avengers, right? My undercover team that we would put together. So, you know, you would have all different ethnicities and, and you know, males, females, and everyone had their skill. You know what I mean? Everyone had their everyone had their certain thing they were good at. Maybe it was buying pills. Um, you know, maybe it was buying the NFA weapons. You know, the machine guns, the sawed-off shotguns, whatever it was. But everyone everyone specialized in something, and we would put together that team, and that's who would staff these operations. So, what we would do because who just keeps buying drugs and buying guns? Cops. So you have to show these guys what you're doing with it so they don't start questioning you. That's where street theater came in. So I would call a couple guys from a, a different office, a couple undercover guys from the undercover program or, or whoever it may be, and say, hey, can you come in and do some street theater? We're going to do the Mr. Big scenario, right? So I would tell whatever local gang I was working with, whoever was hanging out, I would say, listen, I got some bikers coming in. I don't trust these motherfuckers. I never dealt with them before. You guys mind posting up security for this deal? And they'd be like, that's what we do, right? And I'd say, listen, man, I'll pay you whatever. So we would set up, maybe it would be 20 machine guns. Maybe it would be 20 kilos of meth, right? And either I would be selling it or I would be buying. Usually I would be selling it. So me and my crew, we would break 20 real kilos out of evidence, and we'd let the bad guys finger fuck it and everything, you know, the crew before the deal. And here's the dirty part of it. So, well, I'll tell you the dirty part afterward. So the agents would come into town, right? And we don't have this all scripted beforehand.
So we'd say, all right, be at the be at the place at 12 o'clock before we open. So the bad guys would show up. I'd tell them where to post. I'd say, all right, you post up here. You stay with me. You get by the door. Okay, man, we got this. So our guys would call, right, on my undercover phone, and I'd be like, okay, yeah, you're 10 minutes out? All right, we'll see you then. I'd be like, all right, they're in a white van. They're on the way. So they'd show up, and they'd see these big gorillas get out, and the bad guys would be like, oh, shit, they're here. And these dudes would come in and they'd play it super cool, right? They, However they did it. They might be a little bit confrontational, right? Or, or they might be dap hugging everybody and all that shit. And, and we would do a deal, right? We would just let it flow however the deal went. Like I said, it might be confrontational. We might argue about the money, whatever. But they would show up with a suitcase full of money, right? And I would sell them 20 kilos. They, they would take it and go. And then I'd, I'd give that suitcase of money, right? I'd give the suitcase of money they gave me to one of my guys and tell them take it to the spot because i never wanted the bad guys that were helping me to think it was there because they'd right. come back and rob me right. later yeah. so these guys would see that happen and the word would go out like oh these motherfuckers are for real they yeah. are moving shit now the dirty part is if they showed up with guns which they always did they just bought themselves five more years because they just brought a gun to a narcotics transaction it doesn't matter that it's a fake narcotics transaction. Right. That's federal law. Right. So we were not only like using them for this and to spread the word, but we were also tacking five years on top of their sentence because wow. they showed up with a gun. Wow. Which is wow. dirty. I don't like yeah. that when I think about it afterward. Yeah. Yeah. But, but part of the deal. That was part of the deal. And being in these communities for, for as long as you were, mm -hmm. you know, it's like you're establishing real relationships. And I know yeah. you've like talked about specific, and, and I know like eventually this started to like really weigh on you. Big and, time. And, and, um, you know, you're bringing so much of yourself. And I think in a way too, you know, one of the things I want to talk about is you're losing a lot, right? Because yeah. you're not around the family. And, and, and um, I mean, obviously you, you, you got really close with some of the guys that yep. you, that you ended up bringing down. But I mean, even before that, you know, I think that there's this stigma now with, with like policing in this country, you know, that's, there's like sort of a us and them type mentality. But I imagine you were seeing things in the, criminal world. I mean, one, it sounds like you would set up one of these shops and then it would just, and from reading the book, it would just sort of like open up the floodgates of mm -hmm. how much criminality was going on. So one, was that a surprise? And two, were there things that you were seeing in this criminal element? Were there things that you were seeing that you respected? Were there things that you were seeing where, where you were like, you, you sort of admired either the ingenuity or the intelligence or the, um, the loyalty um, uh, among some of these guys? Totally. Can, can you give me some examples? So there was there were some good people coming into those uh, operations. We met some good people, um, some good people who were involved in no criminality at all, who were just coming in there, and some of the some of the guys who were out there hustling, you know, selling guns or selling dope. They were good guys, yeah, right, men and women. Um, so as far as the success, I, I was incredibly from the beginning. The first one I did was a tattoo shop, yeah, up in Augusta, and twelve months. We ran that for 12 months. We had 430 crime guns we had wow. bought in 12 months. So I, I never expected that kind of success, the way, the way it went. But, you know, we had different gangs coming in, and, and our big rule was that there was no beefing, right? That was a neutral place. But, but that didn't last, right? There was fist fights, and we were out there. But we got in so tight with so many of these groups, right? And, you know, when you just stood there and bullshitted with the, a lot of these guys, they were good kids, man. Yeah, yeah. They were doing stupid shit out there in the street, but a lot of them were just a product of their environment. Yeah. And again, I don't, I don't make excuses for criminality, but when you grow up in it and that's all you know, 
you know, what are your options, man? How are you going to put food on the table? Right? They were doing what they knew. And a lot of them, when you took the time to get to know them, they were smart, right? They were creative. They just, they, they didn't have direction. They, the majority of them, they didn't have someone, they didn't have that figure telling them what was right and wrong and, and what, what path to take. You know, they took the path they saw that the guys they were hanging out with took. And, and that's, that's all they had. And so that's what they were doing. Now, it, it's kind of a complicated issue, obviously, because when it comes to putting guns on the street, you know, what are you going to do? These guns are killing people, right? So whoever's doing it needs to go. But there's always that little war inside of you when you're working undercover and you finally get to know these people. Mm -hmm. And you say, man, that dude's just, if, if you put him in a different set of circumstances, right? If you change the game and, and could transplant him into someone else's life, dude would flourish yeah but he is where he is man yeah yeah you know yeah. ultimately you you started to not want to be around for the takedowns yep um how, how did that work and what, what 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 would it do what would it do to you to sort of see that and like do you what, when was the first time you sort of saw that betrayal kind of yeah. uh you know in real life so it was it was a funny thing in that uh after the takedowns would happen the communities were kind of disappointed in us because a lot of them were just coming in there and they had gotten to know us and they were actually, you know, buying our merchandise and they thought, you know, we were good dudes and we had developed relationships and they learned out we're undercover federal agents and it was disappointing to them. And, and so although we did some good in their community and we took a lot of guns off their streets, there was a personal kind of disappointment. And I was like, yeah, that kind of sucks. Right. And as far as, the guys we had gotten to know, uh, a lot of it came about because of the, a lot of the unfair uh, um, sentencing guidelines for the dope. Um, you know, back then we we're, were still buying a lot of crack cocaine. And you make a couple buys, you get a guy over 50 ounces, which is not a lot. Right. I was watching these dudes go away for over 20 years. And yeah. I was like, damn, the guy who sold me three guns just got three years. Dude sold me, you know, 52 ounces and he just got fucking 24 years, you know? And it, like, I was like, man, there's something's not right there, right? You know, something. What do you think that is? Like, what, how did that, how did that, how did that play out in your own head and heart? You know, it's funny. When, when I first got on the job, the big thing was how many years you could get, like how big this, you know, in federally you're sentenced in months, right? Sure. So, you know, it was like that number. You want every guy you got to get like the highest number you could get. And it was almost a pride thing. Right. But then when I started working undercover and as you got to know these guys, that kind of hit home and you were like, man, I, you know, I, I don't know if, if that is really going to help society. If him going away for 26 years, is that, is that helping society? You know, we're, we're going to put this guy in prison and pay a lot of money for yeah. him to be in prison you know, does that make it better? Or is there another option? Sure. Right. Sure. And, and again, these are deep questions sure. that I don't know the answer to. So what's crazy though, because it seems like, you know, in order, in order for you to be, to get to the level that you got to, and then, you know, ultimately with Russians and with biker yeah. gangs and all the shit that you've done, it's like almost like the main tool you need to have is you need to be able to understand people. You need to be able to yep. get close to people. And I, but that's also going to be the thing that's kind of end up hurting you the most because yeah. you're getting close with people exactly like you develop you start liking these guys yeah you know and there was guys who this and this will not make me popular to say this but there was dudes who i was working undercover on 
and I developed relationships with that would jump in front of a bullet for me before mm. people in my office would. Wow. You know, and that's how deep it went. And that's why that betrayal, especially toward the end of my career, started cutting a little bit. Can you give me an example of somebody that you got enormously close with, felt that way about? So the, the guy... Uh, uh, the guy in Chicago, uh, I went up there on this crazy case that uh, the Chrisser had was kind of the Geppetto on that case. And uh, he brought me in. And this guy was a, a member of the mafia. He was in the Sarno crime family. Um, they call it the outfit up in Chicago. And he was also an outlaw biker. He was with the outlaws. And, you know, it was uh, the trial was called Family Secrets. It was a big deal up there. And he was uh, kind of this is when they realized that the two were working together, these two huge criminal organizations, you know, the Italian mafia and the one percenter outlaw biker world, they were working together. So Christer had brought me in to do this undercover. Um, and I was actually, I was posing as like a down and out MMA fighter up there. It was a wacky case where I brought this dude. He had a, he was in Cicero and he owned a uh, Goldberg Jewelers. And I, I brought these teeth that Christer had gotten with, with, um, there were gold crowns that had bloodstains still on them and shit. And I brought them in there. That, that was my cold intro to this guy. And it worked, right? Through going there multiple times, eventually I got in the door and it worked. And I ended up just spending a lot of time with this dude. And there, he was another one of these guys. There was no crime he wasn't into. He, he was having meetings in, in his back room with, with the gangster disciples, the Latin kings, the Italian mafia, the outlaws, you name it. He was dealing with all of them. And, uh, I just spent a lot of time with him. Like, you know, he introduced me. I met his son. He had, he was a, he was a good dad. Um, and he would introduce me to his people and it meant something to him when he would introduce me. Cause he was, he was almost kind of proud of me. You mm. know what I mean? Mm. And, uh, there was a night when we were out, he wanted to meet me out at, at a strip club and, uh, he started toasting me and, and, and he said, listen, I can't trust the people that I grew up with, the people around me in my life. He goes, it's my 40th birthday. I didn't even know it. He goes, so I appreciate you being here. He wanted to be with you. Yep. And I was thinking to myself, man, boy, you, you picked the wrong motherfucker to trust, dude. You know? Uh, but I mean, and if you don't feel that inside, like there's something wrong with you. Like you shouldn't be working undercover, I feel, if if that doesn't kind of get you a little bit. Because yeah. it got me. I was like, Jesus Christ, man, I, I don't feel good about yeah. this. Yeah. And then so the the moment that what you asked about, when they went to take him down, this was a joint case with ATF and FBI, and they, they, wanted, to, they wanted to see if they could flip this guy. And I, I knew that this guy wasn't going to flip, right? I mean, <laughs> right. you just know, right? Right, 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 right. So they had me, me and my partner, Tino, they had us bring him to this uh, hotel room at the O'Hare, at the Hilton at the O'Hare uh, Airport in Chicago. He thought he was going to meet Hoist Gracie. And he was going to meet a bunch of ATF and FBI agents who had put all the evidence against him in a room, boxes of evidence, because they thought that was going to make an impact. I got him there, and he, first of all, he, he had his son with him, and I was like, jeez, oh, right? So anyway, we get there, and uh, he's not saying shit, right? And so they come to me in the back room, and they're like, hey, go in there and show him your badge. And I was like, really? Really? So this is, you, you bring him in, so you're, yeah. you're driving over that day. Yep. He has no idea what's waiting for him. You, it, it's you, him, and his son. I walk them in, and they jump out, and boom. And so I, I get into another room. I'm, I'm figuring at least I'm feeling like shit, but my job's done. And then they come to me like, "Hey, go." Did they throw you up against the wall too and handcuff you? Nope. Or, no, no, nope. you just split. Up. They told him right away, and he was like, "No." 
and, and he wasn't saying much, so they wanted me to go in there, badge him, and see if I get him to talk. And I was like, really? So I go in there, and I show him my badge, oh, and I man. say, hey, Mark, listen. I said, I just want you to know that, man, this is not personal. I, I, you know, I had a job to do. I had an assignment, and I was doing my job, and it's not personal. And he looked up at me, and he goes, really? He goes, it's not personal? He goes, I brought you into my family. He goes, you know, I brought you into my home. He goes, every single thing that you have said to me up to this point has been a fucking lie, and it's not personal. Dude, I had nothing to say to that. I had nothing to say to that. I turned, I just turned and walked out, you know? And then when he, he did go to trial and uh, uh, he got 60, 60 years. I couldn't even look at him in the courtroom, man. It was a tough one, you know? Th what? That level of betrayal, you know, had, had started to become tough on me. But like that level is what, what I guess is needed though, yeah. right? I mean, it's like- sure. Because, I mean, if I remember right, there had been numerous agents that had tried to even just gain entrance. I mean, they had been trying forever to get into that shop. And, I mean, look, I mean, I mean, it's just, it's, it's like these bigger philosophical questions, right? Like, yeah. is he, was he a bad man? Like, what kind of man do you, like, how, how would you, because I know it's tough, man. Like, he's your, he's your friend. I talk to my friend Carl about this all the time. It's like yeah. some of these guys, it's like... Dude, they're my friend, man. And it's yeah. like, you, but what was he doing that you feel, or do you feel that he, he needed to be taken off the streets? You know, he was sending out robbery crews that were, that were hitting joints. Um, you know, he was, he was, they were knocking off tractor trailers full of uh, flat screens and all that. Um, you know, I mean, there was, there was definitely a level of violence that he was, he was directing, um, you know, beside just, you know, the drugs and the usual selling of drugs, th there was a level of violence that he was into. You know, th that's inherent. Uh, what he had actually done is that, uh, it was a, you know, the mob was putting in these uh, get video gambling machines in these businesses. And uh, one business didn't want to play ball. So he, him and his crew blew the place up with a bomb. So, you know, and it's hard to have any sympathy for a bomber, right? Um, so unless you, unless you go into his home and meet his kids and his wife loved him, his, his son loved him. Right. So again, we were talking, you know, is no one's all bad. So it, it's hard. It, it's all perspective, I guess, you know, and you can spend a lot of time with a cold blooded killer and think they're a great guy, Yeah. you know, and, but there's something in them that you probably, a dark area you don't want to know about, but everything else is okay. So. You know, one thing I hear from guys who've been on for a long time is like, not many people really want to be cops anymore. No. The kind of people that are coming on are of a, a, a different breed. You got real work slowdowns. Yep. You got a lot of cops whose whose hands are tied. You got a lot of like just discontent for the for, for the police in yeah. general. And 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 I feel like so much of that comes from sort of the natural division and the lack of honestly, I mean it's a weird fucking word to use, but like the lack of empathy that that that's involved because you don't have people who are either from these communities or who have mm. been bold enough to actually experience it to see that both things can be true. That you can be uh you, you can be engaged in criminal activity, but you can be a good person that sure. wants the best for your family. And that there's some people that are beyond repair. There's some people yeah. that just like the crime is too like we gotta get that person off the street. There's some people that maybe potentially you can show another way and they're just playing the cards that they're dealt. Yep. But it's because we haven't fucking there's not enough 
of people that have actually rubbed elbows and like been been right in there. And the show is called Real Ones, not to be a fucking cheese dick, but right. like that's what we had. You know, one thing I really found. I mean, I knew from the second you and I started talking and who your friends are, but you know who who you are in the community, but also in your book, it's like you really. It's there's a lot of humility and a lot of empathy yeah. and a lot of looking at yourself and ad- admitting things that were difficult and admitting mistakes. Um, what do you think about that as far as, as, as far as policing in the culture and what, what is it, what does it say about somebody who's sort of unable to do that? So if you're unable to do that, if you're unable to, to, to look inside and say, and I was, you know, I was for a long time and say, Hey man, maybe, you know, maybe I'm not doing things the way I should be doing them. Then, then you're bound to repeat the same mistakes over and over again. Right. And things will never improve with your relationship with the community if you can't step back and say, maybe this isn't the right way. Right. Maybe sure. there's another option. So it, it needs to really, I think, come from from both sides. Right. So from the community side and from the law enforcement side to kind of get together and say, all right, listen, there, there is a happy medium someplace. Right. There's a happy medium out there somewhere where, you know, as law enforcement, we can say, all right, we need to change tactics, right? You know, th- this is old. And this doesn't apply anymore. You know, and the community needs to say, okay, we're, we're going to show you some love and support for protecting us and for doing the right thing. Yeah. And, and, you know, we're, we're going to police our own a little bit better to make your job a little bit easier. You know, and so the two can meet. It can happen. And it has happened in, in some places. But until that happens on a grand scale, man, look at Chicago this weekend, man. Yeah. It's, it's just... We, we got to get there, man. You know, um, we got to get there. And it, it's got to come from both sides. Both sides have to do a little soul searching. I mean, it's, it's interesting because I, I, I remember parts in your book, you know, where you said even like the guys that would come in, these, these, these gangbangers or, 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 or gang members or, or, or guys from the criminal community that you would sort of bring in to do security for you, where even they would say, man, that was some Hollywood shit, or yeah. that, right? Like they would, they would get caught up in the stuff that you guys were doing. It was almost like larger than life. And it is, it's like a lot of that stuff because Hollywood, it is, it's so like glorified and romanticized. Yeah. And I think like you said it yourself, like one of the reasons you wanted to do it is you saw that guy pull up in that fucking car oh, looking the way he did. I want in, you know, my friend Carl Townley in Shreveport, his uncle was undercover narcotics. Carl was like on his way to being a criminal. And he was like, well, fuck, I could do that. Like, that's the no coolest shit. thing. So there's this idea, this, 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 this coolness, right? Was there ever a time besides like the betrayal, was there ever a time when you really felt like, I mean, I know your life has really been in danger, but was there ever a time where you, you where you said, fuck man, this, this, maybe this, this ain't for me. Or, or, or was there ever a time where you thought that sort of the heat just got too intense? You know, that, that's a funny question because that never happened in the, in the second half of my career when I started doing these long-term undercover infiltrations because I had gotten so, so comfortable. Those situations happened when I was in that period I told you about when I was kind of earning my way. When, when I was doing the deals in the alleyway, right, and, and when I had dudes stick guns in my faces a couple times, Right during a deal, and they'd, they'd stick the gun in your face. Are you a fucking cop, or whatever it was, or they were just there to rip you. Right? They knew you were showing up with money. They had no intention of selling you that gun. Right. They were just going to keep the gun and rip you. Those times were what was when I had some doubt. Right? When you're looking down the barrel, right? And and you know this kid probably isn't going to shoot you because he really does. He he wants to make some money and keep making money, but they might. Right, and that's when I had some of that self doubt, and that was in the, what we call quick hits. That when I was just an, uh, 
informant would introduce me to a bad guy, we'd set up a deal at a car wash, right? And those were always the scariest times when my, when I, my life was really in danger because the, the guy who you've embedded yourself with and you've spent, you know, eight months with, you know, or the crew or whatever it is, they're much less likely to kill you if they find out who you are. They're, all they're going to do is distance themselves. They don't want right. to bring heat, right, on their organization right, right, or anything. Right. They're just going to get the fuck as far away from you as they can. Did that ever happen? Were you ever made? I was never made, no. But that kid in the car wash, he'll shoot you. He'll shoot the shit out of you. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He doesn't care who you are. Right. You know, so I experienced that early in my undercover career. Um, as, I, as I went along, probably one of the dangers of working undercover for as long as I did and some of the other guys did is you become comfortable, yeah. right? And that's the biggest danger. So the way I dealt with that is to work undercover, you have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. So for me, just my coping with that and how I did that was if I was in another city or wherever I was, I would walk into a boxing gym or a Brazilian jiu-jitsu gym, right? And, and I would, like I told you, I was a terrible boxer. I would get in a ring with a pro, right? A local pro, you know, and I would spar two or three rounds. And as you know, as a boxer, you know, even some local pro who just fights in clubs will just take you apart, mm -hmm. right? I mean, the, the skill difference was, so, so when you're in that ring and you know there's still about two minutes left in the round <laughs> and you, you have no gas left <laughs> and this dude's so much better than you, yeah. You got to be comfortable being uncomfortable yeah. as your face is getting punched. Same thing on the jujitsu mat, right? When, you know, when you're rolling with a brown belt or a black belt whose skill level is so much higher than you, and you know your face is in the mat and you pin, you better be comfortable being uncomfortable. You better learn how to breathe. And so that's what that's what I would do, so that I would always I could be comfortable while I was uncomfortable in those situations. You know, that helped me transfer over. Yeah. Yeah. And, and 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 talk a little bit about your your family and you know I got real busy with my career sort of right at the time where I started a family so I just wasn't really there you know what I mean yep. and it took this enormous toll on me on my family and my wife and um, it gets to the point where it's just it's almost like you know that you know that level of uh, you know getting out the door and getting into it it's like that's almost where that's almost becomes your home yep. and and um i know you, you you know i i know there's a lot of people that kind of go through that i'm just wondering you know how you look back on that now um i i know how how good of a father you are and i know how much you care you know what i mean it was the first thing you you, you and i talked yeah. about it's what you wrote in the inscription you you talked about your kid you know like yep. i know and 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 i believe that 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 I don't know if you believe this, but I, I really believe that, man, you could be doing 20 years in prison. You could be some fucking piece of shit who, who, who's fucking ran in it. But like, it's always, it's all, like being a parent, man. It's like, it's always, you're never going to love anything like that, whether you're near, far, close, you, you, you know, never seen them. It's, it's always there. It's always present. And I'm just wondering, like, how do you feel now looking back? Can you take me through sort of the journey of, 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 of your family life and how the toll that work took on it and how, how you've dealt with it? Yeah. So I was just like you when I, when I really, when I hit the ground running in my career is coincidentally when I had a family, yeah. you know, and I, I realize now you cannot be a great undercover agent and be a great family man. The two are mutually exclusive. You just can't, because if you want to be great at undercover, Undercover always has to come first. It, it just does. That's the way it is. And uh, it did in my life. Um, so I look back 
and I think about, uh, you know, what my wife, who, who has her own career, right? And, and super strong woman with her own career. And, you know, what I left her with so many times, right? You know, I'm, I'm in, and it really doesn't matter if you're, as you know, it doesn't matter if you're 30 miles away or 3,000 miles away. If you're not home, you're not home. It, right? doesn't matter what you, all those kids know is you're not at that recital. That's right. You're not at that game. You know, your wife knows, you know, she's got to, she's got to go to work and, and have her career and she's got to, you know, pick up and drop off and do all that. And, and you're not there. So it really doesn't matter what you're doing. If you're not there, you're not there. And, and when I look back and I think about the times that I wasn't there, you know, and what I missed and there's no getting it back. You know, there's no getting it back. You can't go back. There's no magic that will ever, ever get back what you missed. Um, all you can do is from, from the moment that light goes on and you realize it, you, you just make up for lost time. Yeah. You do the best you can to, yeah. to fill that void and make up for lost time. So I, I try to live with no regrets, right? I mean, because they're useless. Regrets are useless. Yeah. However, th there's always a hole in there from, sure. from what I missed, man, you know? But 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 it, it it what you're saying is you put that into action. You do something about it. You be where Absolutely, you are right man. Yeah. You do it now and you do yep. you you got today and you got tomorrow. That's right. And and uh what would you say like in your career, uh what what, what are you most proud of? What 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 would you say? Yeah, you know, the numbers. So the sheer numbers. Like remember I described that feeling when I had that first gun. Um so so the end of my career was was uh uh like a dumpster fire, right? And I actually had a little bit of time at the end of my career to compile all of my reports, right? From back from, you know, 1998, uh, when I started working undercover. And, uh, you know, I, so I went through everything and I, I started counting up. And I had bought in undercover transactions over 1,000 crime guns off the street. So if there's one thing I'm most proud of, it's the number of guns, because when you buy one gun off the street, it's it's hard to it's hard to quantify that, right? It's hard to say you know that gun might have killed a bunch of people. Sometimes we can find out if it has through Nibin and through these different techniques, you know. But now that it's out of this bad guy's hands, it's not going to kill anyone else, right? So that's a good feeling to me. That's why buying dope never appealed to me, right? You know, dope is dope. It's out there. You, you're not even going to plug that hole in that dam right, with dope right, right. but guns mean something man when you get a crime gun off the street it means something and and the fact that i was able to buy so many yeah. you know over 1000 during my career that is my proudest achievement man you know for a guy like you you've seen firsthand you've had guns pulled on you you you've definitely seen people shot you've seen yep. the effect of what guns can do and i, and I know you've lost people to gun violence yep. people that, that 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 you care about deeply you know, like what? What's your opinion now, man? Like, what's your opinion now? Like on the gun? Like, I, I don't really. It's not the politics. I don't give a fuck about politics. But, it, but in terms of, you know, the culture of guns in 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 this uh, in this country, and I don't mean to put you on the spot. That I can tell no, exactly how kind of I feel. But you said that that's what you're kind of most proud of, and 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 you know, we're we're in a place now where you know, man, you you drive down the street, and it's you know, the odds are you know most people are armed and. Is that a good thing, a bad thing? Like, I'm just interested in, like, what your take is on that. You know, my, my opinion on it is, is a lot of people fail to look at it realistically, right? You have, we have to be real about where we are right now today. So, yeah. and, and the stats are there are more guns in this country than there are people right now. There's more guns than people, right? There's 300 and 
30 something million people in there's more more guns there's don't ask this like, fucker he's stoned man okay hey, yeah. <laughs> we'll talk later right. so right so so how do you address it the the reality of it right you could say man it'd be great if there was no guns and it would be but how do you address the reality of it so my unpopular answer is first of all we got to take the trigger pullers off the street right the known trigger pullers in every neighborhood got to get them off the street so Hire more ATF agents, which people hate to hear that. And and the gun people hate to hear that, but hire more ATF agents to, to help. Why do they hate to hear that? Yeah, it's, it's a very uh, anti-ATF atmosphere out there. Yeah, you know, the, the Second Amendment people hate ATF. They always have a lot of Congress. They hate ATF, and they keep us small and underfunded and underpowered um, because of that. But there's nothing wrong with enforcing the gun laws that are on the books, right? Listen, task forces work. When when ATF pairs up with the city police department, like in Baltimore, there's been some great ones. The, the city cops know who's who are pulling the triggers, right? Let's go after those guys. Let, let's get the start out addressing the gun problem by getting the trigger pullers off the street. And like the worst of the worst, the people who we know are using guns who shouldn't have them, Let's get them and let's get their guns off the street. Let, let's just start there, man. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's to me that seems like a simple enough, yeah. You know, start. Do Do you have any opinions about like gun laws or like what 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 should be legal, what shouldn't be legal? Uh, background checks, any of that? I mean, I don't even know. I mean, I know it's like different state by state, but like, do do do, do you have any any kind of like take on that from from being a yeah. guy who's gotten so many guns off the street? Yeah, we have great gun laws. I, I you know. A lot of people hate our gun laws, but I I believe in them. We have good gun laws. We need to enforce them more. You know, they're not enforced enough. And, you know, the background checks we have are good, but where it fails and where the system fails is in mental health. Because there's no background check, effective background check that addresses mental health. And look at all the recent shootings. Um, I'm not talking about a lot of the, um, you know, more urban, you know, which are mostly drug you know, drug boy shootings. I'm talking about these, you know, these shootings that happen where these dudes are out killing five, six people. Yeah. It's it's mental health. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't know the answer how you figure that out, but there's got to be some checks and balances, right, to figure out if this, this guy who's trying to buy a gun has had some issues or sure. having some issues. Sure. Uh, again, you know, we can do all this. We got AI. We can, you know, do all the. We can figure it out. Yeah. You know, yeah. we need a better mental health system to keep people who are having mental health issues away from guns. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the guns are out there. there there's guns out there. You're never going to do anything about that. No, yeah, it's, yeah. it's hard. You can't, again, I used to, can't put the toothpaste back in the tube, man. That's They're right. out there. That's right. So let's enforce the laws and let's address this mental health thing. Man. What What would you say is like the biggest misconception about sort of criminality in this country, about street gangs, about about organized crime? What, what, what do you think people just, just get wrong about that and don't understand? You know, I, I think the... the the glorification of a lot of these groups and a lot of these guys. Um, and, and when I would go in and I would live with these guys and I would be with them day after day, uh, you know, Hollywood and, and the general public, you know, are romanticizing what they're, and these, a lot of them were just petty thieves and, and they were uh, domestic abusers. And there was nothing that was romantic, you know, or, or, appealing about anything they were doing you know they were stealing and robbing 
and they were violent and and there was no nothing romantic about it you know what i mean uh nothing at all so they i think that uh the people out there they want to emulate you know some of the more no notorious uh guys out there in the world who who we've seen in movies and shit when it when in fact there wasn't nothing cool about them. Yeah. 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 You know, they, they treated women terribly. They, they just, they'd steal the money out of your wallet if it was in a room with them. They had no honor. I remember when, uh, when I was in, when, when I was a kid, I was a shit fucking student, right? And, 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 uh, you know, but I really wanted to, uh, really want, wanted to play sports in college, you know, when I was there. And, uh, we, we had we had to do a senior project in order to graduate. So me and my buddies, we we, we took bartending. We went to bartending okay. school. You know, what I mean, in, awesome. in DC, yeah, it was great. Yeah. And uh, in 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 DC, you could be a bartender at eighteen, but you could go to bartending school at eighteen in Virginia. So we went to Virginia, Kathy mm -hmm. Cherry's bartending school. There's this guy there who, uh, I think he was, uh, uh, I think he was ATF. He was an undercover. He would like hang out there. Anyhow, so I remember he told us a story. Uh, and I didn't know if it was bullshit or not. I was you know, an impressionable kid, but he told me and my buddies the story that um, he was like infiltrating this uh, motorcycle gang. And uh, you're like, yeah, maybe not. <laughs> like starting off right. with that to an 18-year-old kid. Right. But he said that he was at this bar and he said that uh, one of the guys in the gang came up to him and said, hey, I bet you I could knock my old lady further across this bar than you could. And uh, the guy said, uh, well, who goes first? And he goes, you do. And he said that he knocked the woman across the bar, punched her in the face so he wouldn't blow his cover. First question, is that bullshit? Second question, what? Second question, one is that, but do you think that's bullshit? Second question, what, what was the most compromise you felt you ever were where you had to do something or say something or that, that, that you really didn't want to do, or you regretted doing, you know, I, 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 you know, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but like, you know, man, it's just like two guys talking and we, yep, you, yep. but like, you know, like you, there's always that scene. I always think about, I, I'm, you know, I'm sure you see you, Donnie Brasco's the one, ever, but you know, right. where like he fucking starts beating the guy up at the, yep. at their Japanese restaurant. Was there ever a situation that, that you were in? like that, that, that you had to do something you really didn't fucking want to do or you really regretted doing? And, and also, you think that guy was bullshitting me. Just a settled debate among me and my buddies. All right. That is definitely something a biker would do. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that, that scenario is, is totally believable. I, I've seen very similar things to that. But the fact that that guy was telling you that he was infiltrating a motorcycle club <laughs> is probably bullshit. But the okay. scenario is totally realistic, man. Okay. okay. Totally realistic. Uh, you know I'll tell you my biggest uh, my biggest regret is, is it kind of goes in a weird a, a weird way of I was drunk one night and I was uh, laying on this filthy fucking pool table and this was is on the job on the job and there was this huge dude who was like on top of me and he stunk I mean he stunk and he was giving me a tattoo with a needle that was already in the thing. So I, I, you know, he didn't take the needle out. It was already in the gun. So obviously it was not a sterile fucking needle. And he was, and he was giving me this awful tattoo. Um, and I, you know, I was doing it because that's what I had to do. Right. To, 
to get in with these guys and to be accepted with these guys to get this tattoo from this dude. But again, I was drunk. He was drunk. He stunk. I, I can still, I can remember that sweet, like jail smell he had yeah. and, and this fucking filthy tattoo gun he was using as he's tattooing me. And I kind of had to do it. Right. You know, this was early on in the case and I had to do it, but I, I had this moment of clarity while that was going on as drunk as I was. And I remember thinking, just as as the tattoo was going in, like, wow, my mom would be so disgusted with me right now. Mm. Like, I came from a good family. You know, my mom, one of those Italian ladies who went to church, like, all the time and, and um, prayed for me. And if she could see me right now, she would be so disgusted. I, I would be such a disappointment to my mother right now if she could see me. Like, and, and thinking, what the fuck am I doing? I went to college, came from a good family. Why am I on this filthy pool table, you know, getting a tattoo from this filthy, dirty motherfucker? Like, wh what am I thinking, man? How did, how did I, like the same way I thought about how did that MS-13 guy get from there to there? How did I get here hmm. right now? And, and that, was, that was a time when I felt most compromised because I felt like I was giving up my own values and letting down my parents, hmm. you know, by, you know, there was just no reason for that. Hmm. And I just felt like, well, I would be a letdown to my parents. Hmm. You know, because the interesting thing, my father was never, he was never happy. My father didn't like the government, right? Well, most Italians had a little thing against the federal government, <laughs> you know what I mean? And he he wasn't jumping up for joy when I, yeah. I told him I was becoming a Fed, you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so, I, and I, I just, I never wanted to disappoint my parents. And, and, you know, sometimes I ended up doing things, even though I, I was doing them generally for the right reasons, but I was just going overboard and I was like, man, I, I'm, I'm probably letting my parents down right now if they're watching, huh. you know? Huh. And, and, and when you said your career sort of ended in a dumpster fire, Oof. yeah, can you, can, you, can you explain? Yeah, I, uh, I got to a point where I was Sal Nunziato a lot more than I was Lou Velosi. Um, and I was buying into my own bullshit. How so? And, and Sal Nunziato had a great life, man. Everybody loves Sal Nunziato, man. Right? Everybody loved him. Fun time guy, right? Throwing money around. Great dude. Um, gangster. Uh, running the streets. And, you know, Lou Velosi's life wasn't so fucking great. And, you know, I, I became, uh, uh, you know, I kind of had bought my own bullshit and had become a lot more Sal Nunziato. And it led to, it just, it, you know, it led to bad behavior and, and stupid shit. And, and, and that is not, I'm, I'm not using that as an excuse. You know, I, I did it. And what kind I, of bad behavior and stupid Well, shit? you know, it led to infidelity. Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, that ultimately kind of ended up being the downfall of my career. Um, it was with a federal prosecutor. And when that came out, obviously there's conflicts there. If that prosecutor is prosecuting the case you're working undercover on, um, you know, if that relationship isn't disclosed to the courts, there's an issue. And when that got out, um, you know, that was something that was very, very juicy to the press. Uh, and it got splattered all over the internet and the news. And, uh, you know, people already looking to, to bash ATF for anything. Um, and this was kind of at the height of the uh, storefront operations. And it certainly didn't, didn't help. Um, you know, this kind of press and, uh, it kind of sent me in a downward spiral. Um, everyone, uh, the people that I had worked with and worked for 
uh, at the U.S. Attorney's Office turned their back on me immediately. Um, and ATF, shut up, dude. You know, my own agency w was good. You know, they they uh, they kind of understood, and, and they said, but OIG had taken over, and they said we can't we can't really help you. You know, because the OIG is in charge, and once I now I'm under investigation after 25 years, and my mind couldn't accept that um, that I had been selling selling out, um, and I had been every I'd given everything in my life, I had sacrificed everything, and now the tables were turned, hmm. and I went into a spiral. I mean, I, I went down. I, I went from. 250 to about 198 in a couple of weeks. Um, I look like a crackhead. Wow. And, uh, you know, I, I ended up at a psychiatrist and, uh, you know, I ended up, I mean, I didn't see a way out because now my own government was coming after me and uh, I, I didn't see any way out. And, and the only thing I didn't want to see, I didn't want to see my son or my daughter ever reading something bad about me, right? That their dad was a, a dirty, no good cop, because I wasn't. Um, so, and I saw how unscrupulous the government can be, right? You know, they didn't want mud on their face from all these operations or something, so they decided that, you know, they were gonna, they were gonna come after us. And uh, so while while they they sick the OIG on us, which is the Office of Inspector General, and, and this was going on, I went into this downward spiral of you know suicidal thoughts and just I couldn't accept reality. What was going on? And I, I really had nowhere to turn. Right, my wife certainly you know didn't want to help me out at this point. Yeah. Right, you know the betrayal there. Um, my friends, you know, I had friends that I hadn't called in decades, you know, that I had distanced myself from because I was working undercover, saving the world, and you know, in my opinion. And, uh, you know, I found myself strangely alone and, and mm -hmm. my phones were silent. Um, and what, what saved me was my crew, my undercover brothers and sisters who knew I was righteous and they didn't abandon me. And they, they I mean, they took turns flying into Georgia to wow. try and you know, keep me from doing something stupid and, and to deal with my wife. You know, I ended up, I, you know, I ended up uh, at a psychiatrist's office and, uh, you know, it, and it was actually, it was my wife, you know, who, who actually set me straight, Wow. Um, you know, and looked at me and said, you know, if you're thinking about doing something stupid, you know, I'm going to make sure your son knows, you know, that his, his dad let him down. Mm. You know, and that was the last time I ever had any stupid thought, you know, in my mind, you know. So so from that point at that psychiatrist's office that day, uh, you know, I, I kind of started the rebuilding process. Um, and I had, I had to rebuild every relationship in my life because I had destroyed all my relationships because of, you know, the whole undercover thing where I had, you know, taken it to heart and I was doing it for the right reasons, but I didn't realize that I'd let it kind of take over my life, you know? And I, I was doing it kind of uh, putting it over in importance, over what, what was really important, over my family and my friends. So I had to start a long multi-year process 
of rebuilding my life, of rebuilding these relationships in my life and gaining my wife's trust back. I couldn't do it through words. You have to do it through actions, right? And that takes time. Sure. And, uh, you know, you know, with my children, you know, building, building relationships and, uh, it was hard coming out, you know, and I was, of course, I was cleared of any wrongdoing and all that. And I, and I retired with honors from ATF, but I, I was done. I was, you know, there, you know, obviously I wasn't working undercover anymore and, and my career was over at that point. And I had to kind of, I had to reinvent myself at that point. You know, I, I was lost. I had my phone stopped ringing. I had my undercover phone, my government phone, my personal phone that would ring nonstop. Sure. The guys needed this, supervisors, sure. informants, bad sure. guys. Sure. Silence. Sure. Nothing. Sure. The, the silence was deafening. I bet. And uh, so I, I really, I did. I had to kind of reinvent myself, man. I had to start from scratch. You know, I, I retired young. I, I got on the job at 22. I retired at 48, wow. 26 years. And, uh, I found myself about 50 years old and I, everything was silent. And I kind of, you know, I've been rebuilding a life ever since then. And, and, and how do you look at that now, man? Is that a blessing or is that? A blessing because had it not happened, uh, my, my eyes never would have been opened ever had that not happened, had that situation never happened. Um, I would have lost my wife. I would have lost my kids. I never would have regained my my friendship, you know, uh, from years ago with with all my friends, uh, because I was just buying my own shit, you know. Yeah. So it forced me to reinvent myself. If it hadn't happened, I don't. I'd probably be dead now. You know. Wow, man. And it's it's uh, you know, in this in this life, it's amazing what, what 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 talking to yourself in that narrative and just saying, "Well, I'm doing it for the job. I'm doing right. it for the job." And then it's like, "Shit, man, where that that guy that you, you know?" And 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 with what you do, you know, it it's it's like it, it really is. It's like you got to be the fucking role. You got to be the fucking role. But then, well, we're type A personalities, yeah. right? So so we're gonna go in headstrong, right, and dive right in. But there's always a price to pay. Yeah, yeah. There's always a price to pay. Yeah, yeah. You know, and and I always say it's funny you say about the excuse. It'd be so easy for me to say, like when I wrote the book, that you know all my actions and what happened to me was was a result of you know working undercover for all those years. But man, you got to look in the mirror, man. You make your own decisions and you and you live with them. And and so. I look in the mirror and I say, you know whose fault it is? That, that guy right there. You know, that guy made the bad decision. And both things can be tr true. You know, it's like, yeah. look at what you fucking did. You know, a thousand guns off the, you know, it's like, look at the career, look at the relationships, look at the, you know, on the front lines of this thing, you, you, you know? Yeah. Um, and, 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 and again, man, like just God bless that you, you can look at it now and look at this sort of like crisis that came in. And realize it, that that it was probably the opportunity of of, of your life, and it yeah. saved you, saved you, saved your family, you know. And and uh, you know that psychiatrist told me, uh, she said, you know, with all the betrayal, you know, over these past two decades that you've experienced, she said, if there wasn't something wrong with you, I'd be worried. Fucking a. Yeah. Yeah. You know. But again, I I don't use I never use any of that as an excuse, man. I, I made my own decisions. Sure. And. Uh, but you can certainly see, like you're saying, you know, why you went down a path, a certain path based on what was going on. You know, yeah. would all that shit have happened if, if I had stayed at the bank? Probably not, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, yeah, right. right. And, yeah. And, and so what now, man? Like, what are your goals now? Like, what do you, what, what do you want now? What, what, what gets you up in the morning? What makes you happy? What, 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 uh, what, what are you looking forward to? 
So the book has bought, brought me so many great opportunities. Uh, it's gotten me on the, the speaking circuit. And, and I got to thank uh, Steve Murphy and Javier Pena, the DEA Narcos guys, yeah. the, the two awesome legends who brought down Pablo Escobar. Because, uh, you know, they kind of been my, my, my godfathers in this speaking business and gotten me in. And uh, I'm able to go around at, at these law enforcement conferences and I tell my story. And... I love doing it, and I love looking out at these faces, at these cops, because I, I can see, I can see the stress on their faces, right? I see it in their eyes, and, and I tell them that the most important thing, right? To keep, because what we do as as law enforcement, as cops, we always put the job first. The job's before our health; it's before our families. We always put it first. I say, just do this for me. The most important thing in your career is your pension. That's the most important thing right? We're lucky because we're one of the last professions that still have a pension, right? And you have to live a long, healthy life after you retire because you've earned that pension. Now make the government pay you that, right? So your goal, and I always tell them this, is to get paid longer than you worked, right? Mm. I worked for 26 years. My goal is to get that pension for 27 years. I love it. You know? So- Take care of yourself, man. I know what you're doing is so important right now. And that case you're on right now is so important. Step back. It's not that important. Look who's around you when you go home. That's what's important. Those people you take for granted, right? The family, friends that you're taking for granted, that's what's most important. Look at who's around you. Tell them you love them. Give them a kiss. And think about your pension. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. You mentioned when you first walked in uh, about Mel. And, uh, you know, Mel's obviously an important person in both of our lives. But just yep. t- t- tell a little bit about what tell a little bit about uh, uh, Mel Chancey and how he came into your life. So Mel Chancey, uh, and, it, and it's kind of funny because, you know, I started to tell you that there, there was that old cartoon I used to watch when I was a kid with a sheepdog and a wolf. And they were, they were like mortal enemies. Right and and all day they're battling back and forth because the wolf's trying to get the sheep, the sheepdog's protecting the sheep, and then at the end of the day they would clock out with their time cards, and and exchange pleasantries and walk away with their lunch boxes, right? Because they were okay, and that's yeah. kind of like, you know, ATF agents and outlaw bikers are mortal enemies, right? I mean, they hate us, we hate them, right? Our our goal is to is to lock them up in prison for the rest of their life, right? And so it, it's kind of ironic and funny that Mel Chancey, who was an outlaw biker, has become such a huge part of my life. Mm. You know, Mel has held my kids and and my wife loves him and he, and he's a, he's a Yeah, how can you not? Right? Part of my family. Right. Yeah, how yeah. can you not? So so he was brought into my life by by my one of my best friends and my mentor Chris Bayless, who and Chris ironically was went undercover uh with the ultimate goal of locking Mel up. Yeah. Uh he, now he went under. Chris went undercover in a different chapter uh, because he didn't want to be in Mel's chapter because they had grown up in a very kind of close to each other. Yeah. So he was worried about a little cross contamination there, possibly. Sure. And, and ultimately, um, Mel faced RICO charges. Yeah. Um, so, in a weird kind of twist, Chris and Mel became friends. <laughs> yeah. Now Mel went to prison. Yeah. And Chris ended up looking after Mel's mom, uh, who's one of the sweetest ladies I've ever met in my life, while Mel was in prison and uh, staying in touch with him. And, uh, you know, when Mel got out, 
there there was a friendship there. Yeah. And so as when Mel got out, Chrisser told me, "I want you to meet this guy." And uh, all I knew was Chrisser vouched for him. Yeah. I, that's all I needed to know, right? Because right? right. that's good enough for me. Right. And so he took me over to his house, met his old Italian mom. <laughs> um, it did, the whole scene was just kind of funny. Yeah. And and this was this was huge, Mel. I mean, yeah. he he was the thickest man I've ever. And you met knew in my his life. reputation. Oh yeah. Everyone. What was what was Mel's reputation? I mean, Mel was so Mel was the scariest outlaw biker who had ever roamed the face of the earth. Yeah. Mel Chancey was feared. Um, he, you know, Mel lived a, a brutal existence, violence, and uh, he was the real deal. And everyone knew of him and knew he was not to be taken lightly, not to be messed with. Um, this Mel we know now yeah. is not, <laughs> I call him good Mel. Yeah. Bad Mel was a whole different person. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, I, of course, knew of him and, and you know, Chris had filled me in on everything. Yeah. And and when I met this guy, this was not what I expected. Yeah, sure. Right. Sure. Yeah. This was this engaging neighborhood guy. Yeah, yeah. But do you think that man, like, do you, like? I mean, because again, you've 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 experienced. You, you know, it's like you've been around. Yeah. You know, it's a big thing we always talk about on this show. It's like unless you've been in the valley, you 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 really can't know the fucking mountaintops, yeah. right? Like, yeah, it, for sure. It, and it's like you sure as fuck can't help people. Like you can't unless you've been down there. Like you really yep. can't reach down and pull others out and and uh it's just like it keeps on happening it's like guys like you guys like mel it's like guys you you know like you you know he's really been there you know what oh, i mean yeah. and and now it's like devoting his life to to to, to helping others and yep. spreading joy you know what i mean and and one thing that's easy to forget about mel you know because his outlook is so good on like mel did a lot of time in prison yeah you know between state and federal prison mel's done a lot of time in prison yeah. and hard time I, Hard time. Yeah, because, you know, Mel wasn't – they weren't putting Mel Chancey in a minimum security. Right. right? right Mel was right, at the right. maxes. Right. And, and with the worst of the worst. Right. And, and, you know, I don't know about you, but I can't imagine spending one night in jail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, and, and this dude has spent – imagine years and years and years in prison. Like, yeah. I, how he could have such a positive outlook on life yeah. is, is the, one of the most amazing things about him. Today. Yeah. So, so I was introduced to him and – and, and it was, he was, to me, he was like every guy I grew up with, man. He was a neighborhood guy, yeah, right? Yeah, you know, I yeah. could have been Mel Chancey, right? Okay. You could have been yeah, Mel Chancey, yeah, yeah. right? He just, he, he's another guy who got caught up in it. Yeah. He got caught up in it. Yep. And uh, he was very good at it. Yeah. <laughs> and he rose to the highest levels of his profession. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, and, and we, we just developed the same bond that he and Chris had. I developed with him. Yeah, and, and the the funny thing was he knew of the crew that I was working when I was in Chicago, you know, he had dealt with those guys and mm -hmm. he knew of those guys. And, and we just, you know, we just, we just bonded yeah. right away. I, he came to my house. Like I said, he, he's held my kids. I've been to his house and, and I saw in Mel like this, this, not, not just the incredible story of redemption, but I saw this light in this guy. I was like, man, if this guy who's, who spent like easily a quarter of his life behind bars in prison and, and the rest of it, you know, in this incredibly violent world, yeah. if he can see the sunshine through the clouds, so can I. Fucking man. A. It's inspiring. Actually, yeah. yeah. He yeah. has been a huge inspiration to yeah. me. Man. Yeah. You know, a convicted felon, uh, you know, head of a motorcycle gang, outlaw yeah. biker. Yeah. And he's been one of the biggest inspirations in, in the latter part of my life. Man. Oh, that's beautiful, man. Crazy. Yeah. That's beautiful. I mean, I love him, man. That's beautiful. Um, Bro, I appreciate this, man. You got anything for me? You got any anything? 
I mean, my my son thinks that your show is the coolest show in the world. <laughs> he, he wrote on the. He'd want me to book, say your son. My son thinks yeah, you're cool with me. It's like, yeah, what the fuck? Yeah. yeah, it's stupid. Yeah, but no, I'm I'm wiped, bro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah I'm wiped, man. man. I really appreciate this. Bro. That was awesome, my brother. That was awesome. Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's John, Bam Bam the Dog. Uh, first, on behalf of both of us and everybody from the Real Ones team, I just want to sincerely thank you guys for, for, for tuning in. The folks that I bring on the show, they're family to me, and uh, being able to tell their stories and bringing you into their world is something I'm, I'm just super proud of and, uh, again, grateful that you guys tune in. We've decided we want to take things just a step further. It's a Patreon community, and basically what that means is if you become a part of this community, look, I already bored Bam Bam. If you want to become a part of this community, you're going to be able to hear episodes early and all that, ad-free and all that good stuff, but there's all this behind-the-scenes footage, all this stuff that we've shot um, that really brings you into the folks that we've had on the show, really brings you into their world. Live chats with me and the folks that I bring on the show to talk about their world, talk about the issues that they're dealing with, about their triumphs and their tragedies. Just go to Patreon slash Real Ones on this website that you see right there, right on the screen, that's right in front of you. This whole idea was um, something about building bridges and, 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 and bringing people together and um, bringing folks that often don't get the mic and, and giving the mic to them. So the fact that you guys tune in means the world. Anyways, again, thank you. Uh, be good to each other out there. Rock and roll.